1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse 12. I do encourage you to come back again this evening for our evening service at 6 o'clock tonight. We'll be in the Gospel of Matthew and uh, looking tonight at the healing of the centurion's servant. Uh, but uh, do encourage you to put that aside and also remember our midweek meeting on Wednesday at half past seven. But this morning we're here in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12 where Paul writes, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you again just for all that we've heard this morning. We thank you today for the good missionary report, and we pray your blessing upon our sister and ask, O oh God, that you would help her as she seeks to uh, get all of the bits and pieces in place that are necessary to return to the land of Bolivia. And we pray, Lord, that that return would come sooner rather than later and that she would be able to reconnect with those uh, dear friends and folks that we've heard of uh, this morning. And we pray for that one that was mentioned, uh, Lord, who needs your salvation so badly. And we pray, Father, that you would touch that individual's heart, even now, Lord, that you would be dealing with them and drawing them onto yourself by means of the Scriptures. Father, we ask today you bless us as we gather around your word. Open up your word to us today. Encourage our hearts in your truth. Strengthen us in our faith. Teach us your way. And Father, help us at the end of this service to agree as one that it was good for us to have been in the house of the Lord. So we ask your blessing upon our time in the scriptures and that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the last time we were together, we examined the opening portion of this particular chapter of Timothy, and we were considering the pastor as a watchman. And we said that a watchman must expose error, that a watchman must expound the truth, that a watchman must emphasize the eternal, that a watchman must exhaust his energies, and that he must exhort with authority. Now this morning we're going to continue into the chapter and along that theme as we think about the role of the pastor and the importance of that role in church life and uh, we're going to see this morning some of the characteristics that really are necessary in a pastoral uh, position. And uh, whilst we read into this chapter we're going to first of all notice uh, some truths surrounding the good pastor. Five truths in all concerning the good pastor. And the first of those we find in verse 12 and that is that he must exemplify the faith. Look at verse 12. Paul says, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, 
in purity. In other words, he says, Timothy, if you're going to be a pastor, you best practice what you preach. I think that's, a, that's pastoring 101, isn't it? You expect a pastor to practice what he preaches. You know, I remember many years ago sitting under the ministry of a young man who was asked into the pulpit. And when he stepped up into the pulpit, he preached on the subject of faithfulness to your local church. Even though his appearance in the pulpit was his first appearance in church for many, many weeks. And of course, the fact that he hadn't been in church and then dared to step into the pulpit and to, uh, to exhort everyone else to be in church completely took away from his message. People were thinking, well, you know, that's a little bit cheeky to stand up in the pulpit and, and exhort us to do what we're already doing when he isn't doing the very thing that he's preaching about doing. So needless to say, his message was lost in his example. And it's always important for pastors, especially if their words are to carry any weight whatsoever, that they practice what they preach. Now, as a young man in ministry, it was especially critical for Timothy to practice what he preached because his youth was a natural and cultural disadvantage as at that time to his authority as a preacher. Now, it is Timothy's relative youth that uh, Paul references and raises in verse 12. Look there. He says, let no man despise thy youth. Now, we think of a youth, we think of, you know, somebody in high school. We think of someone maybe about 14 or 15, maybe 16 years of age, something like that. But Timothy wasn't a teenager when Paul referred to him as a youth. In fact, he was likely in his mid-30s. We know this because uh, around 15 years have passed from the time that Paul first met Timothy to the writing of this epistle. And when Paul first met Timothy, we assume that he was in around the 20-somethings. So he's by now in his mid-30s. And uh, Paul is still referring to him as a youth. Now, when you're in your mid-30s, you don't think of yourself as a youth, do you? But when you're in your 50s, 60s, and 70s, and you see somebody in their 30s, you look at them and you speak to them as a young person, don't you? You say, that young man, uh, even though he doesn't personally feel like he's a, a young man. And so it was with Paul and Timothy. You know, in Acts chapter 7, Paul himself was referred to as a young man when he witnessed the stoning of Stephen. And it was said, that was said of him after he had clearly entered into adulthood, after he had received schooling at the feet of the great Rabbi Gamaliel, and after he had been deemed mature enough to be considered as a member of the Sanhedrin. So Paul likewise was probably in his 30s as he watched Stephen die. So the word youth there shouldn't be understood as a teenager, as someone who's making that transition from childhood into adulthood, but as anyone really who's under the age of 40. Now there's very few of us in here under the age of 40. I think Natalie's under the age of 40. I don't know anybody else is under this. I don't think anybody else is under the age of 40. So Oh, Bart, Bart's under the age of 40. So we've got a couple of youths in here. So uh, this is, the, this is the, the next service is more youthful than this service, okay? This is the senior service. But, uh, but they, they, could, they would be called youths in Bible time. So uh, relative to Paul, and according to the philosophy of Greek culture, 
Timothy, though a young man in his mid-thirties, was considered but a youth. So to offset his youthfulness, Timothy is exhorted to be an example of the believers. He says, you're going to have to work that little bit harder. You're going to have to jump that little bit higher. You're going to have to run that little bit faster. You're going to have to set the pace for the whole church because there's going to be a question hanging over your authority as a pastor because of your youthfulness. And from that thought, he then leads into six areas of personal character and conduct. And he tells him that he's to be an example, first of all, in conversation, in word. You know, the Lord Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And so it's important, it was important to Timothy's ministry that he should be honest in all that he said. That he wasn't someone who would engage in dishonesty, untruth, in lying or slander or malicious gossip. Not someone who would be known for telling off-colored jokes or anything of that kind. Or who, who would in any way by his speech discredit his calling as a minister of the gospel. You know, the pastor's speech must always be with grace seasoned with salt knowing not just what to say but how to say it is equally important you know it's it's not just about knowing that having the information to convey but knowing how best to convey that information when it's a good time to share something when it's a good time perhaps to hold your tongue and say nothing so he ought to know how to answer every man according to Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6 so Paul says first of all to Timothy watch your tongue you be careful in word you be careful that you don't do anything that's going to stumble others that's going to be a problem for your ministry but then he tells him that he ought to be an example in his conduct. Now, confusingly, the, the authorized version uses the word in conversation here. But that's not speaking about speech. It's speaking about conduct. It's speaking about manner of life, about your behavior. And the pastor, as far as is humanly possible, by the grace of God, is to be a model of biblical righteousness. Now, what weight will his message hold if his lifestyle contradicts it? You know, if his, if his speech is bad, well, that's one thing. And if his lifestyle is bad, that's something else altogether. And so if he's not living in keeping with his message, well, that's surely going to hurt his message. And he's, he's certainly going to be one who is being, going to be accused of hypocrisy instead of someone who is seen to be living out his convictions. James chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation, out of good conduct, his works with meekness of wisdom. Then notice not only is he to be an example in conversation and in conduct, but also in compassion. Notice there that he is to be an example in charity. Now, of course, biblical love, as we know, is very different from worldly love. Biblical love is self-sacrificial. Whereas worldly love tends to be self-centered, self-seeking. So Christian love is constantly giving out with regards to the needs of others. Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. There he exemplifies what kind of love a pastor ought to have. And so Paul is encouraging Timothy here to have compassion upon those with whom he's ministering. Then he's also to have some composure. Notice he's to be an example in spirit. And it's a small S there, indicating his spirit, not the Holy Spirit. He's to be an example in spirit. Here's a 
man who must learn to have governed his own soul. A man who is not given to emotional excess. One who is not given to great outbursts of his feelings. You know, not one who comes wearing his heart upon his sleeve all of the time. Uh, but someone who's very even-handed. Someone who's very balanced. Someone who uh, really doesn't uh, enter into great depths of despair uh, or into mood swings from one side uh, to another. He shouldn't be someone who's up one minute and down the next minute. He shouldn't be a moody character, you know. It shouldn't be the case that when you, when you have a pastor, that if you want to approach him, that you have to kind of walk on eggshells for your fearful how he's going to respond to you. No, he must be approachable. He must be someone who has composure. Uh, he shouldn't be someone who's given to great bouts of spiritual depression. Now, I want to clarify, I'm not speaking here about clinical depression. There's a difference between clinical depression and spiritual depression, and time obviously would forbid us to go into that. But clinical depression may be medically treated. Spiritual depression can, uh, is not medically treated, cannot be medically treated, but must be treated by means of, of the Word of God and by prayer and by obedience to the Scriptures. Look with me in Proverbs chapter 16 for a moment. Proverbs chapter 16. Notice what the Bible says here about a man's spirit. And how important this is, particularly as we think about the role of a pastor. In uh, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 32, it says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. If you will cross the page to chapter 17 and verse 27, Solomon has these words of wisdom. He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and the man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. So we're speaking here about a spiritual condition. He that is slow to anger. You know, you don't want someone who's flying off the handle, do you? You don't want someone who's barking at people all the time. You don't want someone who's an angry person. Uh, that's not the kind of individual you ought to be seeking. We're speaking here about someone who is in control of his spirit, who manages his spirit, who manages his moods. Uh, you don't want someone who's going to come to the pulpit each Sunday and tell you how down they are and how terrible a week they've had and what awful problems they've had. And if only you knew how miserable their life was, you'd pray for them hard. You know... Look, pastors are people. They have good weeks, they have bad weeks, they have up days, they have down days. Uh, but you don't bring that into the pulpit with you. You control your composure. Then he has to have commitment. He, must, he should be an example in his commitment. That is his commitment in terms of his faith. Notice what Paul says here. Let no man despise thy youth. Be thou an example of believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith. Now, we're not talking about the faith here. We're not talking about the truth of the gospel that was committed uh, unto the apostles and then unto ourselves. But rather, it's a, talking about his faith, his faithfulness. He used to be an example in faithfulness. He used to be a man of steadfast faith, one who is consistently faithful. One who can be relied upon when it comes to the way in which he is conducting his life and living out his faith. His loyalty to the Lord, his loyalty to his vocation, his loyalty to his congregation is beyond question. That's the idea. 
And then finally, in this section, he's to be an example in his cleanliness. Notice, impurity is the last comment. The Greek word primarily refers to sexual purity, both in terms of his outward activity as well as his inward intent. Now, this is really important because we've seen already in the qualifications of the pastor that he's to be a one-woman man. He's to be someone who, if he's married, is married to one wife and is faithful to his marriage and to his wife. And uh, that, uh, now we find that idea of marital f- uh, fidelity is being reiterated. He's to be someone who is pure. And you know what tremendous damage is done to the ministry when pastors are impure, when pastors succumb to sexual temptation, when they uh, allow themselves to, f- uh, to, to be in compromising situations. What hurt it causes to the cause of Christ and to the church of God and to the people of God. And so we, we want a pastor who is committed to holiness. We want one who is going to be pure in his conduct and in his behavior with the opposite sex. Well, only recently we've had a very high-profile fall, haven't we, from a, a well-known global Christian apologist uh, who, it transpired, had been misbehaving sexually throughout the entirety of his ministry. And what a shock that was to discover that he was a sexual predator. But what harm it did to the ministry. So here we have six clearly stated ways in which a pastor is to set the example to his flock. He must exemplify the faith. But then in verse 13 we find he must exhort believers. Paul writes, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. So here Timothy is exhorted to give attendance, to pay attention to three areas of his ministry. To reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Sounds very simple, and it is. Reading is just that. It's the public reading of the Word of God. And how important it is that we read the Word of God together. Now, bear in mind that in the early church, Christians were not as privileged as you are or as I am to have our own personal copy of the Scriptures. They didn't have their own personal copy of the Bible. You know, the Bible was in the course of being written and copied. And so, to that extent, they relied on on readings. It was necessary that the scriptures be read aloud each time. chapter 8 for a moment. Nehemiah chapter 8. You know, the, the purpose of reading out loud in this way was to familiarize the people with the sacred text, to help them tune in to what God was saying through the scriptures. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1, we read this. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding, even with children, upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood 
which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Messiah. And on his right hand and on his left hand, Padiah and Mishael, Malchiah and Hashem and Hashbadana, Zechariah and Meshalem. And at this point you're thinking, I'm glad I don't have to be a pastor to read all those words. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. You know, I love that, that when the word of God was opened, they stood up. We do the opposite in our culture, don't we? We sit down when the Bible is read and stand up for hymn singing. They did it the other way. They sat down for the hymn singing and stood up for the word of God. Do you know what? I think their way is better. I think their way was better. But nevertheless, verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah, Jamin, Aikub, Shebediah, Hodijah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Now that was the practice in Old Testament times, but that practice was dragged into New Testament times. It was brought into New Testament times and was ongoing in the early church period, in the apostolic age. In uh, Acts chapter 15 and verse 21, uh, we read, For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So this was, a, this was an ongoing Jewish practice. And remember, when the church started out, it was a Jewish church. It was a church that was very familiar with practices in synagogues and in Judaism. And they did many of the same things in many of the same ways. And this is one of the things they did. They read the scriptures out loud as the people gathered. Now that's a practice that is carried now over into the New Testament church. And, and why, you know, why, for example, you know, as you read your Bible, and some people say, well, why do we use this old King James Bible? Here's one of the reasons why. The King James Bible was translated with the purpose of being read in churches. You see, when the, when the authorized version was translated, not everybody had their own copy in their hand. And so it was read, it was authorized to be read in churches. Now, when the translators began working on the authorized version, they realized that this was something they wanted people to take home with them. They wanted them to take these truths home with them. And so they actually worked on, on having a rhythmic style to the translation, which actually is one of the reasons why you'll find the authorized version is easier to memorize than many of the modern versions, because it was written to that end, so that it would have a certain rhythm that would help it to stick in your mind. And so we continue in that vein, reading the scriptures in our gatherings each Sunday. A pastor doesn't just read the scriptures publicly, but he must exhort those who hear the reading of the word. He must exhort the people to obey what has been read. 
Exhortation challenges people to apply the truths to their own hearts and lives. And, and having read them, he expounds the scriptures. You know, sometimes he'll share that there's a command, or maybe there's a rebuke, or maybe there's a warning, or maybe there's a promise, maybe there's a counsel, maybe there's a comfort, maybe there's an encouragement. But the pastor brings you to that place where he helps you to understand what it is you're reading. He must also attend to doctrine. There's the third thing that Paul says here. That is, he must give a, an eye to Bible teaching. We just read there in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 how that the Levites read in the book and the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And, you know, pulpit ministry isn't you know, rocket science. It's very simple, really. Here's what you do. You basically read the text, you explain the text, and you apply the text. And that's what, it is. that's what preaching is. It's reading the text, explaining the text, applying the text. And if preachers would do that, you know what? The churches would be in a much happier place today. If we just keep it simple like that, churches would be so much better off today. We could do away with all of the antics and all of the nonsense and all of the, all of the schemes and movements and ideas of men and get back to the Word of God. At all times, to all people, the pastor stands ready to declare all the counsel of God. He exhorts the believers. Then notice, not only does he exemplify the faith and exhort believers, in verse 14 we read, he must exercise his gifts. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Now the word, the phrase, neglect not, quite literally translated means don't make light of. Don't make light of. Paul is exhorting Timothy not to make light of or to have little regard for his calling as a pastor, for his responsibilities as a pastor. He's encouraging him to stay true to his call. And to do that, he, he gives him a number of motives. He reminds him of his spiritual gifts. He says, neglect not the gift that is in thee. The word is charisma. Neglect not the gift that is in thee. It's a reference to his salvation, and with his salvation, the accompanying spiritual gifts of the Spirit given to him by God. Now, of course, every believer has at least one spiritual gift. Every believer, you have a spiritual gift. Now, you may not know what your gift is. You ought to know what it is. You ought to seek it out and use it and apply it in the, uh, in the ministry of the church as God enables you. But every one of us has a gift that God has given us, given us at least one gift and sometimes several gifts. And Timothy must have had a number of spiritual gifts, including the gift of evangelism, preaching, teaching, leadership. Uh, all of these things are evident in the two epistles that bear his name. And uh, Paul makes constant reference to them. And Paul reminds him that those gifts uh, that, that, uh, that, that had been had been publicly recognized that uh, there was a public declaration of his gifts. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy. There was a public affirmation of his gift uh, by uh, a gift of, by means of divine revelation. In other words, God had put his hand upon Timothy specifically. Now today, God uses his word to do that, the leading of his spirit uh, to do that, uh, and uh, providence to lead men into ministry. You know, we've seen that already in the testimony this morning in Natalie's life, how the Lord used her background uh, to bring her to a place of service in which she was the right person, the right fit 
in that particular environment and, and in that circumstance in which she finds herself. Then thirdly, Paul reminds him that his gifts have been confirmed by the church and her elders with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. We could say that Timothy's gifts, which led to his pastoral call, were confirmed subjectively by means of inner conviction, but then collectively by public confirmation and the laying on of hands. We would call that by means of ordination. In other words, a pastor should be an ordained man. He should really have peer recognition for his spiritual giftings. You know, I think that's really important. It is one of the reasons that we have in the past ordained men here. And we've called other pastors in to examine their doctrine and examine their life and to give a recommendation to the church as to whether or not we ought to proceed to ordination and indeed setting them aside for the ministry. That's really important. A pastor should be one who's subject to the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. The presbytery is just a, another word for elders. Fellow elders, lay hands upon him and acknowledge the gift that God has given him. And then he must be, in verse 15, engrossed in his work. Look at this. He says, meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear unto all. Now, if I could paraphrase this verse, I would say that Paul is saying this. Practice and hone your gifts, and then throw yourself wholly into them. Give yourself wholeheartedly to them. Give the ministry your all. You see, friends, the faithful pastor realizes that ministry is no part-time work. It's a big part of who he is. His life is taken up by what he does. You know, as you know, we've been away on holiday this week. And uh, Natalie apologized to me because she texted me on holiday about what the arrangements were for today. And I said to her, she was just one of many people who texted me when I was on holiday <laughs> with church-related things <laughs> um, or, you know, spiritual questions or whatever. Uh, and, and that's just it. That's just, that's just your pastoral life. You know, you can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to switch my phone off. But wait a minute. What happens if somebody dies? Now, you know we have a rule here, you're not allowed to die when the pastor's on holiday. But every now and then somebody breaks that rule. If they pass away, I want to hear about it while I'm on holiday. I want to know if I can be of help to that family when I'm on holiday. So you don't switch off. Your life is taken up by your calling. You know, a number of years ago, I was uh, at a wedding. Actually, it was my brother-in-law's wedding. And, uh, you know... I run into an old school friend, a fellow by the name of Tommy Moody. Tommy Moody was, was my sidekick when he and I used to get caned in every French lesson. Okay? Uh, that was the only way I knew Tommy Moody. Apart from that, he played on the school rugby team. But uh, he and I, he and I would, we, we played a little bit of rugby together, not a lot. And, and then he, he and I became buddies standing outside a classroom each Thursday afternoon or whatever it was, waiting to be caned. And so uh, that's how we got to know each other. Well, because he's a, he was a, he's a friend of my brother-in-law's, he's at the wedding. And uh, after the service, we're coming down the aisle, and uh, Tommy meets up with me, and he says, Hi, David, how you doing? Good to see you. You know, what, you know, what are you doing? And I said, Well, I'm a pastor now. And he said, Oh, well, at least it's a living. <laughs> 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 
And the way he said it was like, oh, I'm so sorry you couldn't have got a better job than that. <laughs> but it isn't a living. And that's the thing, it's a calling. Yeah, if I wanted to have a living, I would have chosen something else, wouldn't I? But instead, God chose me for a calling. And he has placed his divinely appointed purpose upon my life. And so that's true of any true pastor. So that he should be engrossed in his work. That his ministry should be a labor of love. He loves what he does because he loves who he's doing it for. Do you ever see anybody who's just engaged in a labor of love? And he and I lived in one house. Our neighbor across the way had a labor of love concerning his motor car. He washed and polished that car literally every day of the week. Every day of the week. He came home from work and out that car came onto the pavement. He got the hose out, all the business. He began washing it. I thought, how dirty can that car be? You know, you could probably perform surgery on the roof of that car. It is so clean. You know, my car used to look disgraceful compared to his car. But for him, it was a labor of love. You don't do that because you, because you want to. You, do that because, you don't do that because you have to. You're doing it because you want to. Same thing is true in people's gardens. You know, I've lived beside some people and they've had the most wonderful gardens. But you watch them out there and they're clipping things with scissors. You know, and you're, and, you know I'm out there with a lawnmower once every two weeks, run it over and you know, clean it up as best I can and that's it. But here are these people out every day and they're pincing little leaves off plants and, and their garden is, is just wonderful. But it's a labor of love. That's their life. And that's what it is for the pastor, the, the true pastor. You see, he's engrossed in his work. And, and Paul says to him, you ought to meditate upon these things, these duties that befall you. Give yourself wholly to them. Make it a labor of love that thy profiting may appear to all, that thy advancement may appear to all. You see, here's the thing. Pastors have to grow in grace too. No pastor is all that he should be. And those who are waiting for the perfect pastor to come along are just as deluded as those who are seeking to join the perfect church. No such thing as the perfect church. There's no such thing this side of heaven as the perfect pastor. The only perfect pastor there is is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who's the chief shepherd. Everyone else is an under-shepherd. Everyone else comes with sin nature. Everyone else comes with faults and feelings and foibles. So no, there's no such thing as a perfect pastor. But there is such a thing as a pastor who's growing in grace. Paul's own testimony was this. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. So a pastor, in order that he may prove himself as a pastor, seeks to advance in his personal Christ-likeness. And he is hoping, as he grows, that his congregation is also growing along with him. And it's hoped that in the course of time, the people can see growth in their pastor he must exemplify the faith he must exhort believers he must exercise his gifts he must be engrossed in his work 
And finally, he must examine himself and his doctrine. Look at that last verse there, verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now, as we look over all that we have covered in this passage from verse 6 onward, we'll see that every quality in this particular chapter relevant to the pastor falls under the heading of one of two categories. It either relates to himself in person or to his doctrine. It's either about him personally or it's about his doctrine. It's a standard for the man or it's a standard for his ministry, one or the other. So the pastor is constantly bringing his life and his work under scrutiny. Take heed unto thyself, the man, and unto the doctrine. You've got to keep looking at what you're teaching. Make sure that it is in keeping with the word of God. And Paul says, in doing this, you shall save both yourself and them that hear thee. Now, save them in what sense? Well, obviously not in the sense of soul salvation. Soul salvation comes by the free gift of God. It comes by the means of grace. It comes to those who repent of sin and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's got nothing to do uh, with the pastor in terms of the outworking of his ministry. But by constantly reviewing his own walk with God and what he is teaching, the man saves himself from the charge of hypocrisy. He asks himself, am I living up to what I'm preaching? Am I really walking honestly before the Lord? He will be careful in all that he says. He will be careful in all that he does. He doesn't want to be readily accused or reproached for his behavior. He wants to be sure that he's a faithful individual. He, he wants to be sure that he composes himself accordingly, according to his position. And he wants to understand that the nature of his relationship with the opposite sex is exactly what it should be. He's looking out for himself. But then by being, being diligent in the study and teaching sound doctrine, he saves his errors from the very errors that he's set out to expose. He ought to be a studious man. It was interesting how many cults have arisen out of congregations where the gospel was once preached, but the preacher failed in this final hurdle of his pastoral excellence. He got away from the book. He got away from sound Bible teaching. He started preaching what we call springboard sermons, where he would just use a text and then make that a springboard to launch into his own opinions or his own uh, particular viewpoints. And he began to teach other things and coming up with other notions. And of course, all of this leads into apostasy. How important it is that a pastor watches out for himself and his teachings, that he makes sure his word, his messages are grounded in the word of God. These are the hallmarks of a good pastor. And combining all of this with everything that we've discovered to this point, you can see that the pastoral role is no small task. In the words of one writer, the Christian pastor holds the office, the greatest office of human responsibility in all creation. He is called to preach the word, to teach the truth to God's people, to lead God's people in worship, 
to tend the flock as a caring shepherd and to mobilize the church for Christian witness and service. The pastor's role also includes an entire complex of administrative and leadership tasks. Souls are entrusted to his care. The truth is entrusted to his stewardship and eternal realities hang in the balance. Who can fulfill this job description? Of course, the answer is that no man can fulfill this calling. The Christian pastor must continually acknowledge his absolute dependence upon the grace and mercy of God. As the Apostle Paul instructs us, we are but earthen vessels employed for God's glory. On his own, no man is up to this task. And I say a hearty amen to that. No man is up to this task. So my counsel to you folks is that you always be prayerful, be patient, and be prudent in the calling of your next pastor. May God bless these thoughts through our hearts this morning.